Thank you so much for joining us here at Re-Encounters. Before this episode begins, it's important to say that this podcast may contain strong language and adult themes. It is also going to contain spoilers. So if you care about being surprised the first time you watch the source material of what we're talking about in this episode, then don't listen just yet. Go and watch or listen to it, take it in and come on back when you're ready. If you're like me and don't care about spoilers, then feel free to keep on listening. But don't say that we didn't warn you. Furthermore, I would like to add that in this episode, there is some discussion around disability because of the film we're reviewing. In discussing the topic of disability, it's important to acknowledge that neither Boris nor I have had an experience of any long-term disability, but it is a very important aspect of the subject matter of today's episode, and we feel that it's important to cover. All that being said, let's get started. Hello there, and welcome to a brand new episode of Re-Encounters. Yes, hello. It's very exciting to be doing our second one. Um, it's always nice to know that when you do something for the first time, it's not just a fluke. But yeah, Re-Encounters is onto its second episode. Wow. Did you even think that we could get to a second episode when we started this? Well, I, I knew that we could, but whether or not we would was a different matter. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's super exciting. We're sticking to the plan. Yeah. Uh, we found another film, which it's extraordinary that you haven't seen. I know. And based on the clues, I imagine quite a few people must have got it by now. And <laughs> I have been getting messages about how people are just dumbfounded by the fact that I haven't seen this film yet. It is a bit of a shocker, um, especially because when I think about films from my childhood, this is one of the ones that always comes to mind. It was one of my favourite films as a kid. It's remained one of my favourite films, and I think it's one of the most beautiful films, uh, beautiful animated films there is. I can definitely agree with you on that, and then we will get more into it. But I think it's very important that you said the stuff about growing up, simply because there are different ways of us as children accessing types of media. And of course, there are people from my childhood who have seen this film, probably as children, probably around the time this film came out. But I simply wasn't one of those children growing up, or even as a young adult, or even as a uh, brand new adult currently. Well, yeah, for, for me, this film began a bit of a fascination with fish. Oh. Um, mm. I, I became super interested in, in fish and marine life mm -hmm. after watching this film. Um, I remember, I think I first saw it with my grandmother, and I loved it, and... I have seen it now about six or seven times. Wow, that um, is definitely more than Groundhog Day. Yes, it is. But I, I think I said as part of the, the episode last time um, that I haven't, I, I haven't seen Groundhog Day when I was younger. I saw it first when I um, was kind of asked to by a friend who who really loved the film. Um, <laughs> so I actually came to Groundhog Day late. I did not come to this this episode's film late. 
But yeah, I think it's time for us to yeah, reveal. Yeah, let, let's put the poor listener out of their misery. <laughs> um, but yeah, the film we will be talking about today, which you might have guessed from our Instagram post, you might have seen on the episode title when you clicked, whether that be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, we will be talking about Finding, Finding Nemo. Nemo. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is my first time actually watching and experiencing Finding Nemo. Yeah, lo- long walk to get to a, a pretty obvious answer. Yeah, we, we've jumped actually 10 years because Groundhog Day came out in 1993 and Finding Nemo came out in 2003. That was a very smooth segue, Sam. Well done. 10 years is a very long time, especially mm. in an industry like the film industry. And cinema was a very different place. Not to mention, we're talking about a film from a different genre. Yes, very much so. But I think that cinema in the 2000s, especially looking at the fortunes of Disney, and of course this is a Disney-Pixar film, I think it's very important to acknowledge where the company was. Mm -hmm. It was going through a a bit of a rough patch. It's second big rough patch after the kind of renaissance that happened in the late 80s early 90s yes definitely um but one aspect which was going very strong and that i think they were surprised by was pixar and pixar films had been noted ever since they started for their quality the way they looked and the way that that they would just enchant audiences both children and adults alike completely By the point that Finding Nemo was released, cinemas at large had seen the release of films such as Toy Story and Monsters, Inc. Yes, yes. Both of which were massive Pixar pictures. They were all big, but I think that Monsters, Inc. became ridiculously popular. Before Finding Nemo was released in 2003, the world had been introduced to four Pixar films. Ah. Toy Story 1 in 1995, mm-hmm. A Bug's Life in 1998, which is <laughs> an interesting film, Toy Story 2 in 1999. Because it was so successful the first time around? Well, it's an, it's an interesting one, Toy Story 2, because I think it's an instance where the sequel is actually better than the original. Oh, one of those rare instances. Yeah, one of those very rare instances. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one, as you say, in 2001 was Monsters, Inc., which was ridiculously popular. And then we get, in 2003, Finding Nemo. I think it's one of the two best Pixar films. Mm. Um, That's my opinion. I put it up there with Ratatouille, which is my other favourite Pixar film. And Mm. Boris has seen that one. Um, Even before I met you, don't worry. Yes, Boris has seen that one, and we've watched it together again before the podcast. (laughs) Um, You might have to wait quite a while for for that one to get an episode. But don't Um, worry, we will probably be doing a lot more of other animated films, not just Western animated films, mind you. Mm -hmm. Yes, very true. Yeah, I think Finding Nemo was definitely the first Pixar film that I took notice of Mm -hmm. as a child. Uh, Monsters, Inc. passed me by um, Mm -hmm. when I was a young kid in 2001. I was four. Mm -hmm. Um, Although you would have been the target audience for that. Yes and no, because I think as with most Pixar films, when this is something that's continued into the modern day, they're very geared towards both children and adults. Okay, They're children's films, but there's a lot there for adults to enjoy. A lot. And I think that's one of my main points about the strength 
of Finding Nemo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that, that's that's kind of my history with the film uh, when I was a kid. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, that is very interesting because I, as I said, I hadn't seen it until recently, very recently. And I was aware of it mm-hmm. as a cultural phenomenon. I was aware of it mainly through other sources of media, but also through textbooks. Whilst learning English, you would have a lot of material based around films, especially popular films from different genres, in order for people to practice specific language and specific vocabulary. So animated films, of course, would make a big chunk of that, specifically if the English learners are particularly young, as it was in my case, I took note of the poster for Finding Nemo via textbooks. And additionally, through a deck of playing cards, which we, for some reason, had at home. So I just remember playing cards with, I think, my mother, and using the Finding Nemo playing card deck. And you'd have, of course, a picture of the poster on the back with uh, Bruce the Shark as the main figurehead. But then also, you'd have different scenes from the film and different characters, such as Crush the Turtle and Dory and Marlin or the fish angler, the fish with the little light on the top of its head or kind of protruding from its head. You'd have those on the front of those playing cards. And still, I decided not to watch the film. I think think it's a fascinating film poster because it emphasizes the ensemble nature of the cast mm-hmm. and because it's literally got every character on this poster um it's i mean I, i'd be very interested to see if there are any characters that are missed off and which ones they are because i think it would be only very minor characters that are missed off but you've mm. got i think i think it's all of them well <laughs> do you have the humans in there do you have People, no, the you, people. No, you don't have any of the humans in there, but um, I that's think that's a very interesting point. Sense, yes, completely. Considering the story of the film, I believe by having the poster represent the ocean, represent all of the animal characters, even in those who don't live in the ocean, having the birds represented on there, for instance, shows the focus of the film. Mm-hmm. To me, watching the film and seeing the poster. I kind of drew a connection to Studio Ghibli films and the connection which Studio Ghibli builds between nature and humans. Yep. In I can films see that. such as Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, of the Valley of the Wind, or Princess Mononoke. Um, speaking of that connection to Studio Ghibli, anyone who's had um, uh, the DVDs of Studio Ghibli films will know that John Lasseter, who is one of the big names in Pixar, and I forget exactly what his role was slash is within Pixar. Executive producer, creative director. But he would always show up (laughs) um, on a lot of the DVDs for Studio Ghibli films and say, 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 you're holding an amazing film in your hands. And it's it's kind of like, you're about to watch this amazing film. Yes, John. Yes, I know. There are definitely crossovers. And Finding Nemo is also a film about... Yeah, it's, it's about human beings and their relationship with nature, which is a theme that most of Studio Ghibli films are also centering on. I think this is a great way for us to, you know, start talking about connections, start picking our brains um, yeah. about the film. And 
I think just how we started off in our last episode, we can now begin with, for instance, our expectations. Yes, yes. Which we had before watching the film. Yes, and seeing as you're the one who unbelievably is new to this film, as with last time, you go ahead and start. So the very first note I made was that the visuals would hold up and would be very picturesque. And I knew this film was from the early noughties, and I still believe that the Pixar quality would mean that the visuals and the cinematography, or rather the computer-generated animation, let's call it that in this case, would be visually stunning, even by today's standards. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I do think that we can still call it cinematography. Even if it's been computer-generated, it's about the composition of each shot okay, and and the way that everything looks. And I, th- I think that just because a film is animated, animated doesn't mean... And, and whatever animation style it uses... Mm. Hand-drawn, computer, 3D yeah. animation. I, th- I think that the term cinematography can still be used hmm. because they know that they're making a film. It's, it's still a film. Yes. But in the same way as when you're painting a picture... You're thinking about mm-hmm. composition. And cinematography is a lot of the same stuff. Yes, there there are different things, but it, it's a lot about composition and mise-en-scene. What belongs where, what is placed yeah. where, who is in the picture, what creatures, what everything else in the background, the foreground, yeah. the side ground, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that the word can still be applied. Yeah, no, I think, so just going back to my expectation of the visuals holding up and then being still picturesque in the current time where you have films such as, for instance, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, where the CGI animation is glorious to look at. Do you, how do you feel about the visuals of Finding Nemo in today's terms? I think they still hold up. And every time I see the film, I think this is a film that could have come out very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's testament to the fact that the sequel, Finding Dory, they really didn't have to do very much at all. Mm -hmm. And it looked like it had been made at the same time as as Finding Nemo, Mm -hmm. to me, because they didn't have to change the animation style very much. It's beautiful. So another thing which I noted down, and I think I was proven wrong, is that the music would be forgettable in Finding Nemo and not that present. I thought that purely the film would be focused on the voice acting and having the voice acting and the visuals carry the film through without relying on background music for some of the more emotional moments. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, something else relating to the voice acting. I kind of expected someone to have dropped the ball on the voice acting, having done a bad job, because it is very rare for someone to get a complete cast of voice actors who complement each other so well and one another so very well that you become so immersed, even if the protagonists aren't necessarily all that human. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then some of my other expectations were about an illogical sequence of events, because I thought there would be a lot of jumping around from scene to scene to scene and asking a lot of the audience to do the heavy lifting in terms of storytelling, in terms of focusing on one specific aspect, but then jumping to another specific aspect of the film and the character's journeys. So I'm happy to have been proven somewhat wrong in that respect. However, I believe that the sequencing in this film 
is still very episodic, and it's not illogical, but it's not as smooth as in some other films. I want to say the hot takes begin here. <laughs> Honestly, um, I did not find it illogical, but it was still a bit jumpy mm-hmm. in terms of its storytelling. Okay, we'll come. We'll come back to that. Something else I had under my expectations was a relationship between humans and the fish or the fishes. Um, maybe not to the same level as B movie. Oh god. Oh god. B movie is a weird satirical. How piece. have you seen that one and not Finding Nemo? I did have... you watch it for the memes? I have a penchant for watching bad films for some reason. Okay. I mean, B movie isn't an awful film. I said bad. It is... Well, yeah, okay. I wouldn't even call it a bad film, but it is odd in the extreme. Okay, good. And I think one of my final expectations was um, to have elements of a coming-of-age story in Finding Nemo, and I was very happily proven right on that score, not just with regards to Nemo, but also with regards to his father, Marlin. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that my expectations weren't quite as... um, thorough and wide-ranging okay. as yours. But I do think that um, one of the things that I, I knew you would appreciate is the beauty of the film and the beauty of the music. Mm. Um, I thought that you would appreciate the the episodic nature of it, the fact that it told both the story of the, the Bildungsroman elements of Nemo's mm-hmm. life, but also Marlins, and of course Marlins are the focus of the film, I thought you would appreciate mm-hmm. the humour, mm-hmm. which in places is very subtle and in other places is not subtle at all. Completely. Um, I thought you'd be impressed by the iconic nature of it. Mm. Another landmark film, I dare say, after Groundhog Day. Yes, yeah, but I, I think that there are in several... In a different way. Yeah, I think there are several parts of it which are iconic and... Well, there are, there are two performances that I would call absolutely iconic. One of them, which lasts throughout most of the film, is Ellen DeGeneres as Dory. That That's number one. And number two is, <laughs> which I didn't know up until recently, but Barry Humphreys, more famously known as Dame Edna Everidge, mm-hmm. um, as Bruce the Shark. <laughs> um, and I would argue that those, there are lots of other iconic performances. Oh, Willem absolutely. Defoe as Gil... Um, mm. and uh, Jeffrey Rush Jeffrey Rush as Nigel the Pelican yes um, the, whoever it was who voiced the seagulls um, there's all kinds of really iconic moments and performances in there but Bruce and Dory in particular I thought that you would be um, mm. you, you'd, you'd find it super interesting how iconic those performances are my expectation was that you would really also like the way that they did mixing the human elements of the fish characters mm-hmm. with stuff that showed how much research they'd done mm. um, in terms of the life in the Great Barrier Reef and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, okay. I think that more or less covers expectations. Wonderful. So moving on from my hot takes and our shared expectations, I think we can go to describing the film in five words. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is one of my favourite parts of the um, the kind of schedule we've set out for episodes because mm. it, it kind of narrows down your experience and it narrows down, especially for me as someone who's seen the films before and a number of times before, 
it, it's very much dependent on how this viewing was for me. Like mm -hmm. the, the five words that I'm getting are how this viewing was um, and what I picked up on this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting way of looking at it, definitely. And I can say that for me, I'm trying to incorporate some of the film's characteristics or lines into my five words, whilst also kind of giving a brief summary of what I believe some of the main messages of the film can be. So, for instance, um, because this film is so wide-ranging in its themes, I actually have come up with two five-word phrases. <laughs> so, the first five-word phrase I've written down is teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> and I believe it's a really great summary of the entire film because it really depicts the relationship between Marlon and Dory trying to actually find Nemo together, helping each other and actually helping each other grow in this process. I agree. It also encapsulates the fact that the, the tank crew mm. and Nemo work fantastically well together as a team and get things wrong together, but they also work really well um, to to escape. But it, it also encapsulates the fact that there are various characters and individuals that Marlon and Dory meet along the path, and sometimes they're not very useful, but most of the time the, the individuals that they meet are very useful and they become part of the team. They may not be there the whole journey, but they do really assist as part of the kind of wider team. And then the other five word phrase that I've written down for this film is just keep helping each other. And of course, it's a play on one of the infamous Dory phrases, just keep swimming, just keep <laughs> swimming. Yes. But I believe that as a derivation of the previous five word phrase, I believe that individuals, by helping each other in teams, whether those teams be manufactured artificially or naturally, are able to achieve a lot more together than they ever could individually. And you already mentioned Nemo and the tank team escaping together, working together, and simply helping each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, quite right. Two, two interconnected five-word things. I, I've, I've slightly narrowed mine down. I do only have one set of five words. It, it, they're, they're not um, phrases like yours, <laughs> uh, but... My, my uh, words are journey. Mm, okay. Overcoming distance. Yes. And that's all meanings of distance. Hmm. And discovering beauty. Right. Okay, let us try and unpack those. Well, I think we'll unpack them through the stuff that we talk about. But I think the most important part of that, those five words for me, is overcoming distance. Mm -hmm. um, okay. One of the best things that I think the film portrays, and it's something that you have to think quite in depth about, no pun intended, mm -hmm. um, the distance that, that physically Marlon covers seems huge to him. But the diver, the dentist, who, pit, who steals Nemo away, mm -hmm. gets there on a small boat, so we get the impression, okay. or at least we can work out, yeah. he didn't travel that far away for him from Sydney to mm -hmm. get to where he picks him up. And of course, Great Barrier Reef is close to Australia. So it's not that far away for a human to cover that distance. 
But for Marlin, it's a lot longer and it's a much bigger distance physically, mm-hmm. geographically mm-hmm. for him to cover. Yes, and that's why that. the journey feels so epic. And it's yep. made more epic by the fact that it's a search for his son. But it, it, it feels like a very epic thing. And every step, it's kind of an odyssey. Every, every step that he and Dory faces, it, it, it feels like an odyssey. It feels like a long journey. But you're also, he's also overcoming the distance, the emotional distance between him and his son. Definitely. The distance between him and the tragedy of losing his, yep. his wife, his partner. Trauma is definitely yep. a theme here Overcoming as well. the, the distance and the trauma. And I, I think that that means a lot of different things um, within the context of the film. And that brings us on to actually giving at least a short summary of what actually happens in the film. Um, so, as you said, a short summary is in order. Mm-hmm. And as with last week, I think I will take charge of that as the person who is experiencing this film for the first time. So, you have Marlin as a clownfish, who is a single father. After a horrible barracuda attack in which his partner and almost all of the eggs, or rather their children, were devoured. The only singular egg left, so the only singular child that Marlin has left, is this little cracked fish egg who he calls Nemo. And I think it's very important to state that this name, Nemo, was suggested by his late wife. Mm -hmm. And we do see that in the opening scene of the film. So this cracked fish egg then develops into our protagonist, or one of our main protagonists, Nemo the Clownfish. We see Nemo the Clownfish going on his first day of school, but in going to school, or fish school, we have instances of Marlin being very overbearing, overprotective, and just hesitant to be courageous. He is trying to protect and guard Nemo from all sorts of dangers, even whilst crossing the road, or just coming out of the anemone where they live. Mm -hmm. So, eventually they do go to fish school, and Nemo has his first individual steps of childlike adventure, free of parental guidance and supervision, but it's not entirely free of those elements of protection, because Marlin does still tag along, secretly, and Nemo, in order to prove his bravery goes up to a human boat, touches it, but then is caught by a diving dentist, as we later find out. Mm -hmm. So then Marlin embarks on this odyssey. Great word. I think just like Zany last episode, we will be using odyssey quite a few times in this episode. Mm -hmm. Marlin embarks on this odyssey in order to be reunited with Nemo. And on this journey, he has a companion, Dory. Dory, who is... A very lovable character, sadly suffering from short-term memory loss, as fish are prone to do. That's actually a good point, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, Dory is one of the more realistic representations of fish in the film. Mm -hmm. But this ragtag team of the two fishes goes on an epic journey through encounters with sharks, jellyfish, and sea turtles, as well as strong currents in order to return Nemo to his father so they can live together again. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you have Nemo meeting a group of other fish in an artificial aquarium in a dentist's office, a collection of fish who are 
shall we say a little bit jaded, a little bit different to what he's used to. So you have this double act of Marlon and Dory trying to get to Nemo, whilst also Nemo and the tank team, as I think we're going to be calling them for the majority of this podcast, trying to get out of the tank and into the ocean. And at the end of the day, Nemo and Marlon do reunite and are able to grow individually and also together and live happily, as we imagine, after these incidents that they've experienced individually. Yes, yeah, very true. Um, a, a few points which I think are important to mention. We never actually see the Barracuda eat Coral, mm. uh, Marlon's partner, or the eggs. Marlon is knocked unconscious as part of the encounter, and then we, we see things from his perspective. So when he wakes up, it's night as opposed to it having been day, mm-hmm. and he goes down and finds all the eggs gone and Coral nowhere to be seen. All of the eggs gone apart from one, which is the slightly broken one, which leads to Nemo growing up with what he calls his lucky fin, which is a much smaller fin than on his right side, I believe. Yes, the famous lucky fin. I think I can actually see it waving at us from the other side of the aquarium right now. And I think that the heat might have got to you. Let's take a short break and when we get back, We'll continue with more of our thoughts. Grab yourself some water, I know I will, and make sure to tune back in. So we're back again. Um, Apologies for the audio quality in that first half. Uh, We are back in with the right microphone this time. Yes, Um, um, if you caught that, well done on you. And if not, now you know. Yes, I was giving some information that uh, Boris had not mentioned um, that I think is important to bring up. And I think that is very normal with me having only seen the film this one time recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No criticism at all. Not Um, yet. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. Not like your criticism of the film. Mm, Um, That is about to come. (laughs) Well, it's already been, but um, yes, we have uh, the name Nemo. Nemo has associations with the sea due to there being Captain Nemo in uh, Jules Verne's 100 Leagues Under the Sea. Yes, yes. Um, No, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 100 Leagues Under the Sea isn't that far, but 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is far more exciting. Uh, Nemo is his name. It means uh, nobody or no one. Huh. Um, And uh, that, therefore, the the meaning is finding nobody. (laughs) The group of sharks are all sharks who are trying to abstain from eating fish. Yes, true. Um, they they have a slogan which says "fish are friends, not food," mm. um, and they are. It, it's a little bit like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Um, but I guess they're also trying to be vegetarian in some way. Well, supposedly they're trying and failing. I ah, see yes. with one of the sharks who has eaten his friend that yes. he was meant to bring to the meeting. Um, Happens to the best of us. <laughs> but it's Dory getting hit with a mask, which is the main clue that Marlin and Dory have to where to find Nemo, where he was taken. One of the diver's masks. Um, she's hit in the face with that. She has a nosebleed, and then it's the blood that awakens the um, the desire to eat in Bruce, the, the big great white shark. I actually made a note about that, saying that blood is like catnip for sharks. Well, it's certainly portrayed as being so in this film. Mm-hmm. Nemo, during his time in the tank, 
the dentist attempts to take him out of the tank to give him to Dala, mm-hmm. um, who is the niece of the dentist. And Dala has a habit of shaking the bag that she gets the fish in uh, and shaking them to death. And so that would be quite unpleasant. Yeah. For so that the whole tank crew want to stop that from happening. And when the dentist tries to get Nemo out of the tank using a net, which interestingly mirrors the way that he first caught Nemo originally, yeah, um, all of the tank crew get into the net with him and swim down and force the dentist Mm. to drop the net. Then Nemo escapes um, and finds Marlin and Dory, and they find him. Um, But... Uh, there's a, a wonderful bit right at the end of the film where a, a, a human trawler fishing boat uses a trawling net to pick up a whole load of fish. We don't know exactly what kind of fish, mm. but Dory's caught in there. And Nemo comes up with the plan to use exactly the same strategy to swim, to tell everyone to swim down, to get by working together, fitting in with your five words that you came up with, the, the teamwork makes the dream work. Yes, very um, much so. They swim down all together and they break the trawler net um, and everyone's able to swim away. And escape. Yes. Well, I think that was a very good summary, again, with your assistance. Thank you very much for your assistance. My pleasure. And I think with that, we can move on to some of its more wider reception, not only from the critical side, but also from the audience side. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this will come as a surprise to many people, but apparently the critics loved and adored the film when it came out. They did. They instantly praised the visuals, the rewatchability. It was a critical success for Pixar. Yes, and it was also around, much like Groundhog Day was in 1993, 2003 was another insane year for films. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it had in it Lord of the Rings Return of the King. It had... Um, Matrix Reloaded. The Matrix Reloaded, yes. And it also had um, films which were meant to do much better than they did, like Master and Commander, The Far Side of yes. the World. Um, Bruce Almighty, I believe, as well. Bruce Almighty, the first um, Pirates of the Caribbean film. Exactly. Exactly, as um, well, yeah. I think in summer... Um, but yes, 2003 was a big year for film. Big mm-hmm. year for film. Hmm. Finding Nemo as part of that, I think it won the Oscar, didn't it? It won the Oscar for Best Animated Film, indeed yes. it did. Actually, having listed all of those films which came out, I believe a common theme of that could be adventure or journeys. I th- yeah, that's quite true. Um... And the journey which Marlin undertakes in order to get to Nemo, and similarly the journey which Nemo undertakes personally to grow, can be seen as a sort of mirroring other journeys from the films which we mentioned, such as Return of the King or Bruce Almighty. Yeah, yeah. And I think that a lot of films are about the emotional journeys that people make, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not always that they have to undertake significant physical journeys as well. And especially with Return of the King and, and Finding Nemo, there's two very big epic journeys yes. there and for very different reasons um no precisely but, yes but i believe that something else which the critics praise and we can definitely mention here is the fact that this film is enjoyable not only for children but also for adults yeah it has a lot of rewatchability and a lot of positive qualities for the parents supposedly or guardians or whoever was going to be taking the children to the cinema to experience this film yes and i think that that's mainly because the main character of it is a father 
who is looking for his son and overcoming strong feelings of guilt. Mm -hmm. he, he feels like he's a bad father. Um, well, you're saying father and you're saying son, but I believe that Marlon and Nemo are more than just your classic father and son combo. Marlon, as a single father, has the responsibility of raising Nemo on his own. Yes. And that contributes to his fear, to his overprotectiveness, and to his desire to guard Nemo from any and all evil which can befall yeah. him. Yeah, and he lost both his his partner or wife, that's never specified, Precisely. and all of the other children. Yes. Um, in, in effect, he was seeing Nemo's disability rather than the person Nemo was. And thank you very much for mentioning that, because that was what I wanted to get back to. Hmm. Namely, Nemo, with his lucky fin, which is a little bit underdeveloped than the other fin, is a wonderful allegory for living with disabilities. Yeah. Yeah, I can And we will definitely get much more into that, but I just wanted to kind of highlight that right now. Mm -hmm. Completely. Yeah. Should we talk about the pretty astoundingly packed cast and and the, the crew around the film? Because yes. I, I think yes. there's there's a whole lot of people to talk about here, and we probably won't be able to talk about everyone in the film's cast because it is a, a brilliant ensemble cast. Indeed. We mentioned a few names, but... Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think one of the main names we have to mention is Andrew Stanton, yes. who is the person who came up with the idea, directed the film, and contributed to the screenplay of Finding Nemo as well. Yes. And as a little bit of trivia, he also played Crush. Yes, so the, the, the main sea turtle, Yes. Andrew Stanton had been working with Pixar beforehand, and he was a name that they, they kind of knew well, and it was a passion project for him because it's essentially about him. Yeah, a lot of the instances which we see in the film were apparently inspired by Stanton's own experiences, not simply as a child going to a dentist's office and looking into the tank at the dentist's office, but also through his experiences as a new father, mm. through his experiences as a, as a bit of a protective, defensive father who apparently had an overly protective episode or two which served as inspirations for Marlin mm. with his own child. Yeah, the film actually began pre-production in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, so that's five to six years as a process, which isn't, is... isn't too long, but it's long enough. And it shows that they really spent time perfecting as much as they could. Perfecting the film and also maybe coming up with the script and different parts of the script. Mm. Yeah, so this, this quite astounding cast. We've got Albert Brooks as Marlin. Um, main voice of Marlon. Yes, we've got Ellen DeGeneres as Dory. Mm -hmm. um, um, we have Alexander Gold playing Nemo. Yes. At only nine when the film came out, which must mean that he could have been about eight when they were recording the film. Yeah, Yeah, and I think he does wonderfully for a child actor. Like Absolutely. Everything is sold brilliantly. We've then got Willem Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> As people will know from listening to last time's episode, we have a section where we talk about alternative cast. I don't know who I could suggest for, for, for Willem Dafoe's voice, because he's got one of those voices that is almost impossible to come up hmm. with someone who could, who could do that. But I did come up with someone, but it was, you know... That's going to come yeah, later. Yeah, that's coming later. Mm -hmm. So Willem Dafoe as Gil, um, mm -hmm. who's one of the... He's the leader of the tank gang. Uh-huh, yes. 
Um, we've got Alice and Janney as mm. Peach, uh, the aquarium's sea star. Yes, and then we have Stephen Root as Bubbles, the yellow tank fish. Yes, um, we've got Jeffrey Rush, but it's so Andrew Stanton, as we mentioned, as Crush. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth Perkins briefly showing up as Coral. Yes, um, Barry Humphrey. Barry Humphrey <laughs> Bruce Eric Banner. Lots of other names in amongst this, but I'm picking out the people who are probably most likely to ring a bell mm-hmm. in uh, the listener's mind. I'm not sure we'll be able to go into quite as much detail about people as we did with Bill Murray last time. I think with such a cast, it's inevitable that we will kind of skip over or gloss over a few more of the cast members. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting to note, especially for two of these cast members, mm-hmm. Albert Brooks and Ellen DeGeneres, some more details from the time of recording, but also some more details from more current times, let's yes. say. So with Albert Brooks, he used to do some one-off characters for The Simpsons, voicing characters in the animation, and then he moved on to voice even more characters in films such as The Secret Life of Pets. And supposedly, his voice acting helped to save the film after the initial casting of Marlin, which was given to William H. Macy, didn't work out as well as Andrew Stanton imagined it would. Apparently, William H. Macy brought a somber, serious tone to the film, which wasn't really the vibe or the emotion that directing team wanted to go with for Marlin's character. So I do believe that Albert Brooks and his voice really did lend that more human element to Marlon. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely get that. His performance is really compelling because he comes across as something of an everyman. He's genuinely lovable, despite the fact that he says some rather horrible things. Um, which, I mean, he's <laughs> yeah. under a lot of stress. He's lost his son and he's, he's living with this, this immense feeling of guilt mm-hmm. um, and paranoia. Yes. Um, and he says some rather horrible things, unfortunately, to Dory. But she kind of is able to shrug them off because of her nature, Mm. um, which is super interesting. You're so wanting the two of them to reunite, and you're so wanting Marlon to learn the lessons that he needs to learn. Mm -hmm. Because you could, and you see at the end of the film how good their father-son relationship can be, and probably always was. Because even at the beginning of the film, before they go to school, you can see how lovely their relationship Mm. is. But Marlon is just being super protective yes and nemo kind of puts up with it at first Mm. so this is a big way of saying like wind your neck in dad like calm (laughs) down (laughs) yeah indeed and as we said the second character who we're going to go into a bit of detail into is because we got to we've got to talk about the maybe second biggest star on this cast i think in terms of recognizability before this she had done some acting roles Mm. But she was was mostly... how to describe the fame of Ellen DeGeneres. Um, the rise and fall. Yeah, there has been something of a fall, hasn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> initially, let's focus on the rise. Let's focus on her performance as Dory and the fact that she actually managed to make Andrew Stanton and the production team rethink the role of Dory. Mm. Originally, Dory was supposed to be another male fish going on this adventure with Marlin. Mm. Apparently, Andrew Stanton was just listening to an episode of her show on, in the background whilst he was working or doing something else. And Alan's natural ability to change topics in the span of a single sentence and to change the directions of a sentence or a conversation within a short amount of time 
made Stanton actually listen more intently to the show, to her, and decide to cast her as Dory. Mm-hmm. With this, maybe not short attention span, but this pizzazz for changing the subject, let's say. Yes, yes. And it's it's one of those super useful plot um, aspects that allows them to just skip over things mm. and get to the next point. Because, of course, she's got short-term memory loss. So, actually, her losing information allows her to be constantly on mm-hmm. and constantly like, what's the new thing? And that is a really useful thing for her to be, for us as well, to be taken on to the next point of the film. Yeah, definitely. So, Ellen DeGeneres did a wonderful job voicing Dory. And as we mentioned already, she did reprise this role in the 2016 sequel, Finding Dory. Yes. And yet has come under fire recently and came under fire at the start of the pandemic for allegations of onset bullying on her show and just general nasty behavior and creating a unwelcoming atmosphere for a lot of the workers involved with the Ellen DeGeneres show. Yeah, there's been a lot of rumors flying around for a long time over the course of when she had her show. Mm -hmm. Um, The show aired its final recording in May 2022. Right. Yes, time is going very quickly. But, um, yeah, there have been always been rumours about Ellen's behaviour, and uh, she has got into a couple of spats with people very publicly. Mm -hmm. Um, But behind the scenes, apparently, things weren't too pretty either. Pink or positive. Yeah. So, you know, as we did a little bit with Bill Murray, we have to do a certain amount of separating art from artist. Um, Whatever's going on, whatever went on in the life of real Ellen, Dory is a heck of a performance, especially for someone who wasn't professionally trained. And, yeah. That is, again, another interesting through line with Groundhog Day, thinking about Andy McDowell. Yeah, that's true. That's true. People who weren't actors, well, they were, but that wasn't their vocation, or at least their original vocation. Yes, they kind of Um, stumbled into acting, let's say. Yeah, but have have given some iconic roles. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so congrats on the part, less congrats on other stuff. (laughs) I think that's a great summary (laughs) about this section, and about specifically Alan Generous. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, I think we already mentioned the fact that another part of this podcast, which we do look forward to every time. I mean, is... Let's face it, we look forward to the whole thing. <laughs> being yes. able to talk to people who might not be in here in the room, but being able to talk to people, we hope a lot of people out there in the world, is a super nice feeling. Um, yes. Yeah. This was all just a long walk to the point about the potential replacements or alternatives yes. for the cast. Which we are very excited to share with you. Yes. I will start this section off by once again thinking about actors who could have potentially done the roles at the time of the movie's release. So around 2002, 2003, who could have lent their voice to the characters, and I've mainly focused on these characters, of Marlon, Nemo, and Dory. Mm -hmm. Again, with such a big ensemble cast, we can't fit all of them, but I do think that these three characters form the emotional heart of the whole film. So, because I was thinking about male actors very active at the time and who could have brought in a big audience, Mm. 
I was actually considering George Clooney or Matt Damon as potential <laughs> for Marlon. Now, I do know Matt Damon at that point in time was very young, just having done The Talented Mr. Ripley and Ocean's Eleven, whereas George Clooney already had an established name behind him from ER and other instances of media. I'm very willing to agree with you on George Clooney. A, because I think mm -hmm. that George Clooney sells Everything. any film that he's in. Everything. And uh, both in terms of acting, but also selling. Like, he, he may, even if it's just his voice, people go to see the film. I will agree with you on George Clooney. I do not agree with you on Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah. I do realise that he would have been a bit too young for that voice acting job, but uh, considering how much Ocean's Eleven propelled him into stardom, and that helped him gain more reputation as Jason Bourne. Yeah, no, I, I, I see him being a draw for audiences, I don't see him playing the part. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> um, as a third alternate, as a lovely third alternate, we have... Harrison Ford okay. as a potential voice for Marlin. Oh, God. Now, again, the voice would have brought a lot of people in and maybe would have given some sort of <laughs> teaser as to his future careers in as Indiana Jones and as Han Solo. Okay, so <laughs> even in 2003, what I'm going to say, I mean, I think even beforehand, Harrison Ford's voice doesn't sell father to me mm. it sells grandfather he's got this gravelly like especially from from like 2000s he was already kind of like mature enough yeah um then my other alternative castings for nemo were a bit odd but hear me out frankie muniz jr from malcolm in the middle fame or alexa vega from spy kids fame oh my god if nemo well, actually, even female actors can do male roles in animated films. Yes, and they it's frequently not unheard do. of. They Completely. frequently do, especially with younger kids. Definitely. Of which Nemo is one. Yes. Um, Frankie Muniz Jr. was already doing films where he was very much in a teenager mm -hmm. vibe. Okay, Cody Banks, fair enough. His voice is too low mm. to play an eight-year-old. Eight-year-old in human terms. Yes, okay. Yes. Not in fish terms. Mm. Um, but he's too old to play that role, even back, even back then. Mm. Um, yeah. That's fine. I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. This is just me thinking about actors who I know of. But, like, I'm not sure that it's that useful to kind of recast Nemo. Because mm. Nemo, yes, okay, Alexander Gould does a great job. Yes. As a child actor. But there are a lot of child actors out there who could have done something probably a bit similar. I'm not going to have any suggestions and I'm going to put in a different character to potentially recast. Ooh, interesting. Um, yeah, do you, do you have any more and before I get to my list? Before you get to your list? Yes, I, you know, Ellen DeGeneres does a wonderful job, but I just think other potential people and actors I would have been very interested to see include Uma Thurman and Jennifer Lopez as my hot take for Dory. <laughs> I mean, it would have been a very different performance. It would have been a, a bit more of a uh, sexual performance, I guess. I'm not necessarily sure of that. It just would have sold something very different. Mm. Um, you could have you could have done it with exactly the same script, but it would not be the same character. No, no. If either of those two mm -hmm. played Dory, 
super interesting. Super interesting. <laughs> well, because I was thinking, how what was Jennifer Lopez up to in the late 90s, early noughties? Yeah, she was in a lot of films, like Anaconda, Made in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, w she was in films, she still is in films. I'm not sure that it's the kind of project <laughs> that she would have gone for. Possibly not. But, you know, this is an alternative world where we're saying that these people would have said yes to anything, so... And she would fit with the whole idea. I would, I would love to see a version of Finding Nemo with Jennifer Lopez as Dory. I would love to see it. And she would fit with the whole idea of bringing in an untrained, professionally untrained actor. Uma Thurman, on the other hand... Very well again, trained. Again, very different. And, very and, well yeah, trained. She's, yeah. But um, it would have been a really nice contrast from her Kill Bill days. <laughs> yeah, it would, true. True it would. Um, that would have been a heck of a pivot, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, so, my recasts are if, if this film was remade now. Or if it was being made for the first time now. Mm. And one gripe that I have with the film, which is in terms of production. It's not in terms of the film as you watch it. So I'm not going to let it affect my ratings of things. Mm. Um, but one thing which I take a little bit of issue with is the fact that there are American voices in there. In a place which is so clearly based in Australia. It's a gripe. Because I think that there are a lot of very talented, very strong Australian actors who had a big, who had and, and now have mm. a really strong presence on mm -hmm. the world stage that could sell it really well. So, thinking about the, the now, who I would cast as Marlon, Hugh Jackman, I think, would sell the father energy now. And he's, especially after doing Greatest Showman, he sells a kind of family man vibe, and I okay. think it would be interesting to have that within the film. No, I do agree with that, and I think that is a very interesting choice. I personally believe he might be a bit too old, he might be verging on the granddad feeling, but he brings a certain recognisability and an audience... It comes down to quality of voice, and yes. I think that he could still sell the father vibe. But uh, you could be right, maybe he is a little bit too old. In which case, there are the Hemsworth brothers, and the obvious yeah. choice out of those is Chris. Chris. Although I don't think that Chris Hemsworth has the emotional capacity. I, th I think he does, but I don't think it would be the kind of role that he'd go for. Mm. I think that now Hugh Jackman would. Um, the person who I was going to suggest for Dory was Kate Blanchett, who is a figure. Oh. She, she, much like Jeffrey Rush, as I said earlier, okay. is a chameleon who just disappears into roles, but is also authentically herself. Mm. I think she could play it really well, and she'd be one of those people who you were kind of like, oh, wait a minute, that was Kate Blanchett? Like, you, you wouldn't believe that it was her. Now, I decided not to go with Nemo for a recast. Ooh. Um, partly because I don't know the names of many child actors. Yeah. Um, but uh, to make my life... I, this is not an Australian. And this is a very in-depth choice. <laughs> God. But I was trying to think of someone who has a voice like Willem Dafoe's. Someone who would be able to sell it and still has a voice that has that gravelly individualism. Uh -huh. Now, I came up with an actor called Michael Wincott. Mm. Now, those mm. of you who will have heard Michael Wincott's name, he's been around for a really long time, partly because he su has such um, a unique look and a unique voice. 
Um, he was in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves as oh, right. uh, the cousin, the guy of Gisborne to Alan Rickman's sheriff. Um, <laughs> he... <laughs> He's been in all kinds of films. He always plays the sick because he's got this very deep voice. I can't do it. Um, but he, he was in Alien Resurrection mm-hmm. um, as Frank Elgin. Um, he was in 24 Live Another Day as Adrian Cross. <laughs> um, he's also well known in the video game world for being the voice of death in Darksiders 2. Right. Yeah. Beautiful um, game. Wonderful voice acting. Yeah, he's an incredible actor. Just generally, he's an incredible actor. He was also in Treasure Planet as the okay. villain Scree. Because he's got that kind of voice. I can't do it. <laughs> but he's he's a really he's a really amazing presence in mm-hmm. any voice cast. I think probably he and Willem Dafoe are similar ages. I think Willem Dafoe might be slightly older. Mm. But Michael and obviously Willem Dafoe was not as old as this in his in in the day the when he was recording. recording the part for Gil. But Willem Dafoe's voice hasn't changed, and neither has Michael Wincott's. So I think just for the sake of suggesting someone else who could have done it, Michael Wincott is someone who could have done it. Yes, he's not Australian, but I think with the tank crew you get away with it because he says it's said that he's from the sea. Yeah. But it's not specified. And obviously, if you look into the history of his particular kind of fish, you'll probably find that it is from the waters around Australia, and I look like an idiot. But I still think it, there are so few people who can do something at least similar to what Willem Dafoe does vocally. Mm. Um, and just for the sake of finding someone else who could, Michael Wincott is my choice. Very strong choices. Very strong recasting. And... That is definitely something to keep in mind. Should we move on to the next section? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think we already mentioned a bit about this section. Namely, why have we seen the film before? Why or how we have avoided the film before? Yeah, we have gone into that. I mean, yeah. as I said, I saw it as a young kid, fell in love with it, thought it was beautiful, thought fish were amazing and beautiful, uh, got and... a fascination with, with mm-hmm. fish and, and the way that they look. They they put a lot of research into it, yeah. and they did so so well. A lot of hard, um, a lot of work, and so therefore, it, it seeing as it was made at least well, it was mainly made mm. so that kids and adults alike would fall in love with it, and I certainly did. And as you said yourself, you saw it in the cinema as a child, and I think that's one of the main reasons why I myself wasn't exposed to it that early on or didn't have the opportunity to actually see it simply because I didn't have a cinema readily available to me. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to go to see a film, I would have needed to travel. And as a small child of about six, that would have been slightly impossible and difficult to have done independently, yeah. traveling to a different town on the bus. And then even if I was going on a day trip somewhere with my parents, the schedule was mostly dictated by their desires, mm-hmm. which mostly included walking around and looking at buildings, going into buildings, shopping at buildings, I mean, and not really going buildings into Buildings are cinemas. fun. Buildings are fun. Architecture is very fun. Architecture is super fun. I, I, have I would to have admit. loved to have gone to a cinema and seen this film. Well, I, yeah, really? I think that your thoughts on it would be very different if you'd seen it as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as we said, the hot takes we We have started. fewer hot takes. But then again, if you had seen it as a kid, we wouldn't be talking about it as part of this podcast. So, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. Um, Definitely. If a kid wants to go to the cinema and the parents are willing, 
then it comes down to probably the, the parents go, ah, well, this film is getting a lot of traction. A lot of people have seen it. I've been told by other parents that it's really good for me as well. Mm. So let's go and see it. Peer reviews and yeah. peer recommendations. Okay. Yeah. And with a film yeah. that had as much momentum as this one. And kids' films get a lot of momentum. I mean, Disney wouldn't be nearly as rich and powerful as it is if kids' films weren't one of the main driving forces behind the film industry. It's, it, it is the case that films from America get a lot of attention, a lot of momentum, and parents will, uh, with kids' films, parents will go, what can I go and see in the cinema that is for both my child and for me, and both of us will enjoy it? And in the case of Finding Nemo, that is a tick on both counts. Completely. And that is an interesting aspect of thinking about art in general. What is appropriate for me, but also for my child? What is consumable? Mm. for both of us as a target audience. But as creatives, I think people are constantly told, I mean, even with this podcast, we're kind of thinking, who's our audience? Yeah. Who is the audience that we're aiming for? Who's going to fucking listen to us? Like, yeah, who's, who's going to listen to us, A, but who do we want to listen to mm. us? Mm. And it's relatively easy for someone making a kid's film because, you know, there are loads of kids. Mm. But you've also got to drill down into the specifics of what you want to cover. True. And in terms of the, the adults that you're also selling to, you want to, you want to like, pluck on the heartstrings. You want to... It needs to be a story that's compelling for the adults as well. And a story about a single father who is facing an immense amount of guilt looking for his son who's gone missing, that's, that's compelling for disabled everyone. Disabled son. Yeah, he's disabled. That's compelling for everyone. I don't know if it's just me, but I feel compelled to take a break right now. Sounds wise. We'll be right back. Speaking about compelling things about this film and why it's a wonderful film to have seen. Yes. I think we can move on to, let's call it the hot take section this episode. Oh, here we go. Where we're going to share our thoughts on the film upon re-watching for some and watching for the first time yes. for others. Re-encountering. Right. Um, so I guess I'll begin with some of my notes and thoughts well, on the film. Well, seeing as you're, you called it the hot take section, you're the one who's going to be bringing the hot takes to this. So go right yeah. ahead. From the start, we have the seeds of parental insecurity and overbearing nature, which, um, yeah, I find quite interesting. And actually, as a bit of trivia, similar to Groundhog Day, uh, again, the starting scene wasn't the original beginning, intended by the writers or the producers. Originally, Andrew Stanton wanted to have flashbacks into Marlon and Coral's past, but somewhere down the line, in post-production maybe, they decided to just do away with that idea and instead open the film with mm. the couple and their fresh batch of children slash eggs. I'm so glad that they did that because mm. for, for multiple reasons. A, I think interspersing flashbacks would have made it more disjointed. I think that the episodic kind of breaking things up as it stands in the film as it was released is fine and very good. But I think that adding in flashbacks as well would have made it a bit... Ugh! Well, especially for children. They would have been like, what is going yeah, on? Yeah. Um, also, having that scene at the beginning, it's very compelling. It's a very short scene, but it's very compelling. It sets up the kind of slight anthropomorphizing of the fish. Mm. You know, them talking about how this is great property in the same way as people do... People now. Do. Human people now. do. Now. Well, now and always, you know, you're talking about the properties that you're buying and that you're going to be living in, and they're talking about, oh, I wonder if it's the right time to move somewhere with a, this much space and that kind of thing. 
they're talking about it and then they talk about the fact that they're having kids so it's very human yeah and I, it's actually a very great thing to have at the beginning of the film to get the audience into it and especially the children to have them recognize oh these characters are actual fish that talk yeah it also gives us a chance because my first note is literally this it also gives us a chance to bask in the beauty of thomas newman's soundtrack it's just Oh, right from the start, it's an amazing soundtrack. Yes, it's very similar to the work that he did for Shawshank. It's very similar for the work that he did for um, The Green Mile. It's very similar to a lot of the work that he's done. He's done a heck of a lot of amazing soundtracks. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, um, a note which I also had in terms of the visuals, and thank you for starting me on that. Again, I'm just going to give a comparison to Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli films, but the <laughs> film is visually... Stunning. Oh god, it's it's, it's so, so beautiful. Yeah, I touched on this earlier. It's amazing when you watch it that it came out as early as 2003. Yeah. And that they they had to change so little when doing Finding Dory. <laughs> because it was already good. It was already good to the like the nth degree. Uh, they didn't really have to spend that much money also to redo it in 3D when they re-released Finding Nemo in 3D. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's an amazing looking film. Something else I touch upon is just Dory. I think from the very first moment Dory hits our screens, quite literally hits our screens, it's just her hilarious realism. This little aloof fish <laughs> who's just trying to help. She can also read. Oh, yeah, she can read. It's, it's handled so offhandedly. Yeah. But there's some writing on the mask, which is the main, the, the diving mask that I mentioned earlier, that is like the main clue for them finding where Nemo was taken. Dory just announces that she can read. It's gone into a little bit, and some stuff about Dory is explained in Finding Dory, but when watching Finding Nemo, you're like, wait, this fish can read? There's nothing to say that that shouldn't be the case. It tracks, but we don't know why it tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Yet. <laughs> Yet. You've got to wait 13 years to find that out. Mm -hmm. Like, for a clearly animated film, I love the studies that they must have done on the way that fish move. The fact that the camera blinds, because one of the divers takes a picture of Marlin as he's trying to save Nemo from the diver, and the, the flash on the picture makes him go blind, and it's a fact that you're not meant to use cameras with flash yeah. on uh, close to fish and close to the barrier reef. I think it's something that's been legislated against. Hmm. You know. And in aquariums as well. It's true, because it, it startles the fish, and the way that they did that by Marlin being blinded by the light was really affecting and really traumatic. Hmm. So I said this a little bit earlier, the jokes and the humour is oftentimes very subtle and it fits with the slightly more introspective and reflective nature of the film. But occasionally the jokes are super obvious and mm. super funny. One of the, the best ones from early on is when Nemo and a group of his um, new friends from school, who are kind of daring him to do dangerous Ooh. stuff, they see the boat on which the divers have arrived at the Great Barrier Reef, and they they say, oh, what's that? It's a butt. <laughs> I'm going to touch the butt. And it, I, I still find it funny. I know that that means I have the mind, clearly, of a child. Um, but in that's beautiful. Is it? But nowadays, when I laugh at those kinds of jokes, I catch myself laughing at those kinds of jokes. And I'm like, oh, you laughed at that? Yeah. <laughs> you, you infantile motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> That actually brings me very nicely to the double act of Dory and Marlin, as I've called it. That is genius. And they are just really, yeah, good with each other, but also 
for each other, for their individual growth and to just depict this journey, this treacherous journey and how much something like this changes those around you and the people not only internally but also the people within a certain team which embarks on this journey. Yeah, yeah. I think that Dory is in some ways a substitute mm -hmm. for Nemo. Beca yes. Because of her condition, she is in a way also disabled, in air quotes, and Marlin, needs assistance. Yeah, Marlin finds himself looking after someone else and being responsible for her in certain ways, because it's when, the, when there's a jellyfish moment where they have to swim through basically a forest of jellyfish, I don't know what the term for a group of jellyfish is, but it looked a bit like a pink forest in the film. When, when they have to swim through, she gets quite badly injured mm, mm -hmm. on her fin. Uh, crossovers, crossovers, crossovers. But the immense amount of guilt, he's like, oh, Dory, no, I have to save her. Yes. So he goes in like a hero and, and saves her. Um, but he has this immense feeling of responsibility for her. So when it comes time for her actually to tell him the morals, and one of my notes is obvious morals are obvious. Yeah. Um, but yeah. When, when she comes to actually give him the best piece of advice he ever gets, which is just let go, when they're, when they're in a whale's mouth, <laughs> um, she tells him just let go, or, or you have to let go. And of course, literally, they have to let go of the whale's tongue in order to be blown out in Sydney Harbour. He has to let go of so much else. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah. Great messages, great messages for the adults and also for the children. And he, yeah, it's it's finally an adult who's very who's quite set in their ways for good reason, mm -hmm. realizing that he has to let go and change his life, and that's probably the most affecting moment of the film for me. Because just by changing his life, he'll also change his son's life and perspective. Yeah, yeah. Something else which also came to mind is the similarities between. Marlin and Dory, and Shrek and Donkey. Okay, okay, I can see that. Yeah, and especially since Shrek came out in 2001, I do think that Andrew Stanton could have had some inspiration from DreamWorks in that respect. Well, especially considering the, the initial plan to have two male fish. Yeah, the I mean, buddy comedy yeah, film. Yeah, the buddy comedy film. Going on a journey to yeah. save someone, yeah. albeit yeah. in this case it's, you know, Lord Farquaad and it's a quest yeah. given to you by someone, it's a contract, but it's still a buddy journey mission. So there is a lot that we have to thank Ellen for in terms of her pointing out that actually this would work better with a female character. Yeah. It does make it easier for Marlin to say a couple of things which could come across as a little bit sexist. Definitely. Um, but I, th I put that down to the fact that he's in a bad place. Mm. Um, Stressed. Another note I have is just a question. Like, how is this a film about disability, dysfunction, and adapting? Oh, it would have been so nice if it was another D. Uh, <laughs> disability, dysfunction, and... Hmm. Development? That's good. We'll take that. We'll take that. We'll take that. I mean, all true. All true. But yeah, I think just the fact that Nemo's fin is such an important point about his character, about his relationship with Marlin, it is an assistance to him and it really helps him in order to escape and in order to just grow is so wonderful to see on screen. And I think that is handled beautifully, especially mm -hmm. coming to a head in the relationship between Marlin and Nemo. They 
see each other as strong and independent by the end of the film. I'm noticing that you're basically more gushing than me in your praise for this film so far. Where are the hot takes? Yeah, I'm like, I want a hot take. Give me a hot take. You want a hot take? I want a hot take. Give me a hot take. Right. Well, the episodic nature of the scenes and um, the vignettes. I did mention that it, it's very much like a vignette to me and the episodic nature of the film. It seems like it's just a collection of sketches and epi dramatic episodes which just are drawn out for a bit too long sometimes. And it seemed like a combination of Saturday Night Live sketches with moments from a Friends episode where they're not that interconnected and they are their own standalone scenes, which could work very well for individual episodes within a season. But as a collection of images in this film, the pacing is a little bit... It doesn't bring me joy. Okay, uh, you're wrong. Um... <laughs> in your view? Um, you, I, yeah, okay, I get the episodic thing. And I think that this, it could be a mini-series. Like, you could split it up into episode of Marlin's journey, episode of uh, Nemo in the tank, episode of Marlin's journey, episode of Nemo in the tank. But mm -hmm. that works for me because okay. it's it's all connected to this this one story. Yeah, okay, they could have made a, a TV miniseries out of it, but they've shortened everything down to the extent where it's... I don't get that you think that it feels wrong or like a sketch show. I don't see that. It, it's an interconnected story where they're both learning at the same time. And that's really compelling. And it keeps you watching. For, for me, it keeps me watching. and it keep, Because they leave each episode, if you like, of, of Marlon's journey and Nemo's journey mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. a little bit of a cliffhanger or something big has just happened and the characters need time to recover. And so you leave the recovery time for off screen. I get what you mean, but I think that it works. You're not wrong. It's your personal understanding of the film. I yes. just don't. I don't think that the term vignettes nor sketches would be fair. Okay. Because that suggests that it's entirely based in comedy. Okay. And a lot of it is. I mean, there are some things in there that are very comedic. <laughs> the, hmm. the the kind of tiki ceremony in the in the fish tank. Yeah, definitely. Is, it's very comedy. But That's okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Brains are weird. Yeah, yeah. As Dory shows us. I mean, is that your main issue with it? I think in order to talk about some of my other issues, we need to go into the other category of rankings. Okay, well, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, I've given the acting this time a 9 out of 10. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do have a very good cast, but I believe that we only have so much development for the characters which we've given. And that to me points out the fact that A, the script could have been written a little bit more so that more characters have some more lines and opportunities to shine, but also not all the voice actors really take the opportunity to shine or make their presence known. Then another thing about the acting is the other sharks, except for Bruce, could have had a bit more opportunities to shine, I believe. I think that this comes down to different styles of film mm. as, as they're released. This is a film with an ensemble cast. Yes. And what you okay. have to do with ensemble casts, as far as I'm concerned, is yes, you have a lot of characters, 
but you give every character, even the small ones, something that that makes them stand out. Mm-hmm. And I get what you're saying, that you can't remember the, the names of all of the, the characters in the tank, but you remember things about them. There's mm. the puffer fish who's like super, he, he gets stressed easily and, and blows up. And then you There's, have the star. You have the sea star who, and she, she's, al- she's always stuck up against the glass and people can't hear what she's saying. Um, you you have, have the bubbles. Yeah, fish. the guy who's, who's obsessed by bubbles. Um, you've got the obsessive compulsive cleaning fish mm. who, who's scared of germs. His thing is he's French. Um, you know, you give these characters one or mm. two characteristics that make them stand out. I think that with an ensemble cast, that's the thing that you have to do. And then you put a lot of focus on how good your stars are. Definitely, that's why I give it a nine. Well, this is a long way of me saying I give it a ten. <laughs> because I think that the ensemble nature of the cast for a kids film like this about the multiplicity of different of, of life in the ocean you've got to have a lot of characters and you're not always going to know all their names but all of them are kind of iconic wonderful um, as you know opinions go that is a very personal opinion I respect that mm-hmm. I believe the next category we have in terms of ranking is cinematography and that is a 10 out of 10 I cannot fault this film, cinematography, animation, colors, saturation, the lifelike nature of this film is really, really just beautiful and wonderful and it's a pleasure to look at. Yes, I think for a film yeah. about one of the most beautiful places on earth, mm. um, the, the Great Barrier Reef, it, it sells the beauty of that. Um, and it also sells the, the travelogue nature of, like, this yeah. odyssey through the sea. Mm. And so many things are beautiful. And it, it's, I think it's, I think it's perfect cinematographically and in terms of its animation style. It is also a 10 for me. I think one of the most favourite moments I had was actually Dory and Marlin going into the deep. And Dory <laughs> asking the question, are you my conscience? <laughs> yes, and then they see the light, which eventually turns out to be an anglerfish. Mm. But it's... It's really well done. Now, this next one might be somewhere where we have the most gripes with each other. But in terms of music... Oh, careful what you say. I was expecting a bit more from the music. And it really... It wasn't as noticeable as I believe you found it. I... All right. I know I don't seem to focus a lot on background music or soundtracks or scoring, and it just didn't really make that much of an impression on me. Yes, I recognize that it was beautiful. I recognize moments when it was playing, but at the end of the day, I think I'm going to give the music an 8 out of 10. I mean, it's still pretty high. I'm, 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 I'm a self-confessed Thomas Newman fanboy. Uh, yes, I did Fan. say that a lot of his... Music, his music scores sound very similar. They do. But, you know, a lot of actors play the same part again and again and again. And basically, they have massive fan followings. I love the music of Thomas Newman. And I think that in this film, it is one of... It's it's used to such a degree that I, th- I think that it's ideal for this film. I think it does the thing which you said about Groundhog Day's music. It kind of fades into the background when it needs to, but it always keeps the story pushing on. It keeps you interested and it keeps you looking at the film. So 
unsurprisingly, the music for me is also a 10 out of 10. <laughs> yeah, we disagree on that one. That's okay. That's perfectly fine. I think we'll also disagree on the following one, which is themes, mm. where I think I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. I mean, that's still high. That's still super high. That is still very high. Don't worry. I may give scores lower than like seven at some point. <laughs> Don't worry. Not for this film, but at some points during this podcast, depending on what we watched and depending whose recommendation it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the themes, I, the themes they do explore, as I said previously, disability, dysfunction and development in terms of parental guidance and in terms of being a parent are wonderful themes. And I do believe they could have done a lot more with them, especially with Nemo's Lucky Finn. I think that Yes, it was mentioned quite often. Yes, they do make a point of it, but I would have wanted to see how he deals in more real-life situations with his Lucky Finn and just see the beginnings of the phrase Lucky Finn in order to understand how that came about, where it came from, and how he adopted that as a way of overcoming what can be perceived as a weakness in the eyes of a wider society mm. of fishes and people, therefore. I think that you're right, and I think that there is a lot of stuff that they could have done as well. But they're making a shorter than probably average film mm. for kids and adults alike. I mean, it's an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, I mean, which is longer than a lot of kids' films. I think the film is very clever. Okay. Because it's, yeah. a, it's basically quite a simple moral. You know, the, the note I said earlier, mor- uh, obvious morals are obvious. <laughs> ah, but also the film tricks you into thinking that it's going to define Nemo entirely by his disability. Because that's the way that it introduces him. And it does a heck of a lot of mirroring stuff. Dory, as I said, gets mm-hmm. injured on her mm-hmm. fin. Gil was in, when he was, when he, in an escape attempt from the tank, he hurt himself on his fin and around his fin. There's a heck of a lot of crossover, which goes some way to trying to say, Nemo fits in this box, Nemo is disabled. But from the things that he does and the things that he says throughout the whole film, he proves that wrong. And it's not even something that's said outright by anyone except Marlin. So I think that it's so cleverly written. Yeah, okay, okay. And thematically, any film that examines from the perspective of animals, humans' relationship with nature and nature's relationship with humans, I have to commend and doing it in a subtle way. I, I, I was trying to think of a reason to give it 9 out of 10 so we could agree. I can't. It's another 10 out of 10. Yeah, that's valid from you completely. And then, just as last episode, we have another weird element, each of us, And for me, that is the relationship between the fish and the human characters. One of my expectations was that it was going to be not exactly to the same levels as B-movie, but a little bit more interactive between the fish and the humans. In that sense, I would have wanted to maybe see a little bit more of interaction between, for instance, Dala and her fish, or the dentist and the tank. We do see a little bit of how the dentist takes care of the tank once it's dirty, but I just wanted more from the human characters. A little bit more. I can understand. This is going to be very hurtful to you, Sam, but I think in that respect, I'm going to give the film a seven out of 10 on the weird element of oh, human versus fish relations. I thought you were saying overall. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> not, we're not 
yeah, we're not there yet. Um, so, yes, okay, absolutely fine, I understand. Um, my weird thing is partly a nature-based thing, but seeing as the, um, the people did so much research into nature, this is probably something that they came across. Clownfish um, are not actually male and female. Ooh. They, they're all born male. Mm, sorry. Amab. Uh, but then they are what's called sequential hermaphrodites, oh. meaning that they can literally change their sex in order to mate and procreate, then change back. That's so cool. Yeah, that's very cool. That's very cool. What's less cool is that... Well, th this is, this is kind of cool. Maracudas don't eat clownfish. They don't eat clownfish and they don't eat fish eggs. Oh. But guess who do eat clownfish eggs? Other clownfish. So, hmm. actually, in nature... Sorry if this is ruining everyone's view of the film. In nature, a barracuda would not have attacked that close to the barrier reef. They eat much bigger fish. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure, possibly, in a freak instance, a barracuda might eat a, a clownfish. Um, but it's not their usual thing. They don't usually go for fish that small. And they right. certainly don't eat fish eggs. Mm. But... As we said earlier, male clownfish, even the ones who might have become female briefly, mated, had laid the eggs, etc. They eat their own eggs. So... That is... Seeing, befuddling. Yeah, so seeing as... <laughs> this is an alternative theory. Seeing as Marlin, like, uh, tries to stop the barracuda, obviously confused by his fear and testosterone, mm. because the barracuda is not interested... The barracuda's just defending itself from him and from Coral. Um, <laughs> Marlin goes and tries to beat up on the barracuda, and the barracuda knocks him out. And what he doesn't see isn't the barracuda eating Coral and the fish eggs. It's Coral saying, I'm hungry, and eating most of her eggs. <laughs> and then running away. That is a very dark alternate universe. That is a very dark alternate universe. But um, it does kind of fit with the weird lack of a parental figure in a Disney film? Well, I mean, I've never heard in any Disney films of parents eating their own children, but hmm. it's very it's very Greek mythology. But, Definitely, um, yeah. Um, I love that as a weird fact. Um, the amount, They must have known. Some of the people working on the film must have known. Some of the naturalists who they brought in to advise must have known. And of course, it's a very odd thing, especially when they're anthropomorphizing the fish. Hmm. They've obviously got to make them male, female, and a couple. You know, especially because it was 2003 and gay rights. <laughs> but I think that as a weird fact that you can find out on the internet pretty easily about this film, <laughs> um, it gets at least a 9 out of 10. Okay, very interesting. I guess that's going to be one of the lower ranking ranks. I and think course... people can tell what I'm going to give this this film overall. Actually, why don't I just come out and Go say Go for it. it, go for it. Finding Nemo is a 10 out of 10 film. It is... A worthy, worthy winner of the Best Animated Film Oscar. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is... In 2003. In 2003, yes. And it is an excellent film for children and adults alike. I have loved it for as long as it's been around as a film, because I saw it when it... it uh, not possibly on the day when it released, but I saw it in the year at the time, and I've loved it ever since. <laughs> that is beautiful, and I think I will require a few more viewings of the film in order to gain a better appreciation for it, and I believe that is easily done and easily resolved with you. 
later on. And now we go down the slide. <laughs> Very much so. To hear what Boris has given it in Hot Takemus Rex. Hot Takemus Rex Central. Oh, no, no. I mean, I have praised the acting and cinematography. I have spoken about the handling of the themes and how important I believe the themes that they present are. However, the scores, I wasn't able to connect to the film on such a personal level as I think a lot of other people have done. And I will just give the film an 8 out of 10. I mean, it's still high, but on a just personal level, I wasn't able to, as I say, connect as much as you were. Yes. And so my longer than five word description of the film overall says a touching display of connected slow vignettes of a coming of age story. And I do want to kind of emphasize the slow nature of it. It is slow. It is slow, but I think that that feeds into a reflective moral mm. um, okay. of the story. I think it's more than worth it. Um, should we do a kind of rounding off? Uh, quick fire trivia! Quick fire trivia, but also quick fire notes that we might uh, might be particularly valuable from, mm. our, from our time watching. Sea turtles are a needed bringer of chill. Yes, very much so. Love that. I've said this is more than a children's film. <laughs> uh, and I love the fact that it's based on real fish behaviour, clearly. I've got American and Aussie cast is interessant. Mm, interessant. The mollusk joke, do we ever actually hear the punchline? We do. <laughs> later we do. On in the, film. the fish analysing the dentistry is one of my favourite bits. When the fish in the tank come up and they're like, oh, this is the procedure that he's doing. I love it. It's so funny. I think there was also a mention of it being a root canal procedure and it being a doozy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that is in there. Uh-huh. Um, there's also some mention of, of the dentist having the prime minister as one of his clients. I think that one of the clients that he has is, is a male figure. And he says, uh, you'll have to excuse me, Mr. Prime Minister. I thought I catch, I caught that. If anyone is re-watching the film and catches that as well, please... Let, Let us, us know. know. What's the email address again? The email address is reencounterspodcast at gmail.com. That is reencounterspodcast at gmail.com. Please write in to that email address and tell me that I'm wrong. Or I'm right, if you'd like to. The designs are actually quite terrifying. Not only the anglerfish, but also the whale a little bit. The beauty is in the journey for both father and son. Mm. Uh, the rumour mill is great. The seagulls are hilarious. Are they saying mine? Or are they saying mate? Because in an Australian accent, I don't know which one it is. I think they're saying mine. Again, do write in. And, oh, yeah, the, the, the tongue scene as well, where it's like, he says, I promised that nothing would ever happen to him. And Dory says, that's a funny thing to promise. <laughs> um, also, whales are never evil exactly. And then I put, except for Moby Dick and maybe that one in Pinocchio. <laughs> that is... Those are two wonderful references. Yeah. <laughs> and the little bit at the end with the little, little, little tiny fish eating the fish angle. Oh, hilarious. So much is just hilarious. Any more notes from you? I don't believe I have any. All right, let's trivia it. So apparently when Dory speaks whale, mm. it depicts a true way of communication between whales and fish. They do have their own language of wow. communicating. 
So their research even went as deep as that. Wow, that's amazing. And I love that that kind of represents the amount of research that went into the film. Yeah. As part of that research, the entire design team all became scuba certified, which I think is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see it. The dedication really paid off. Apparently, the the powers that be, Michael Eisner, famous uh, as Disney CEO, and I think he's come back as Disney CEO now. Could be, could be. Um, he... He and other people at the top of the company thought that it would go awfully. They mm. thought that it would be a box office, a bomb. And... How wrong they were. Yeah, and I'm so glad that they were. Yeah. Another thing is, um, so the trench, which Marlon and Dory need to swim through to get to Sydney, there are a lot of such trenches and canyons on the bottom of the ocean floor. Or at least on the ocean floor. So again, that is part of the research which the animators and... The writers just did. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yes. For me, uh, this is quite a cool point because a lot of people remember um, the big furore over the Uncanny Valley moment when the first Sonic trailer, Sonic the Hedgehog trailer, hit yes. the internet. Um, Jim Carrey as Eggman. And they actually persuaded the film to go back and change it. Mm. Um, the fans. Something something in the same vein happened with Finding Nemo. The first drafts of the animation were too real. Wow. Um, I can't imagine how that would look like, considering yeah, how um, realistic they already are in the final product. Yes, but, I mean, Bruce, there's an element of fear there. Yeah. With that character. I Some mean, the other he's shorts. meant to be a little bit scary, but he's, he's cartoonish enough that it doesn't really affect the film. Um, especially with some of the characters, for instance, Gil, there is a certain amount of crossover with the way that Willem Dafoe actually looks. Yeah, definitely, um, yeah. Yeah. No, quite, quite interesting. And as I said, it would have been a far more different film if it was done in a more realistic fashion. Um, something about Nemo and Marlin as clownfish, there are actually 30 recognized species of clownfish. Mm. And Marlin and Nemo are of the Ocellaris clownfish variety, Namely, they're a type of clownfish that live within sea anemones. I know that Dala is named after one of the producers who was involved in the Pixar studio. Ah. And she'd been the main producer of Monsters, Inc. And so they named the wow. character Dala after her. Uh, so, I spoke about the relationship between humans and nature as one of the themes of the film, which I congratulated for. But there's always a dark side to this. And the film put serious, uh, it created serious issues for the clownfish population because of a heck of a lot of people wanting them as pets. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, unfor that's very unfortunate that that happened. But people yeah. are allowed to take different messages from a film. And in a way, maybe it was good that specific fish breeds were more popularized as a result of finding Nemo. But yeah, again, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Although a lot of people had the opposite, um, it had the opposite effect for, and apparently they wanted to release their fish from the tanks. Oh no. I think that is my bank of trivia facts sort of depleted. Yes, thank you so very much for keeping up with our, or my hot takes rather, Keeping up with Sam's patience with me. 
And yeah. Do you want to say anything to our lovely listeners? Yeah, I'm so grateful that you're keeping on with us on this journey. And you, please, as we've said throughout the whole episode, don't be shy in sharing your thoughts with us. Get in touch over email or send us a message on Instagram. We really want people to get involved and share their thoughts because that's that's at least partly what this is about. (laughs) Yes, it's a passion project, but it's also about talking to people and listening to their experiences. And, yeah, as yeah. we mentioned, people love talking about films, people love talking about podcasts, and we can only hope to bring about some more inspiration for your next conversation and for your next viewing. Yes, if you have enjoyed, then let us know. If you haven't enjoyed, also let us know. Let Please. us know what we can do there. Yeah, write um, us the comments. Yeah, so we'll round things off there. I believe that is a very good place to do so. And we will see you next time on Re-Encounters.